0: the uh, Swedish, were sent out and and they attacked um, air bases and basically managed to destroy a lot of the aircraft and infrastructure there. This is
1: Cold War Conversations. This episode is dedicated to Glenn Towler, long-time supporter of the podcast and aviation enthusiast. He passed away suddenly a few weeks ago. Blue skies, Glenn. The Cold War years were a period of unprecedented peace in Europe, yet they also saw a number of localised but nonetheless very intense wars throughout the wider world, in which air power played a vital role. I speak with former Cold War tornado pilot and acclaimed aviation historian Michael Napier, who has written Flashpoints, Air Warfare in the Cold War, published by Osprey, which describes eight of these Cold War conflicts. We discuss the wide range of aircraft types used and the development of tactics over a period of revolution in aviation technology and design, which saw some of the most modern technology that the NATO and Warsaw Pact forces deployed. Now, Cold War history is disappearing. However, a simple monthly donation will keep this podcast on the air. You'll get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, uh, my name's Glenn. I'm from New Zealand. I was in the British Army in Germany when the Berlin Wall came down, so I've always been fascinated by the Cold War.
0: This podcast just
1: brings it all back to life, and Ian does such a good job of this. Anyway, uh, keep up the groove work. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. And don't miss details of the book giveaway that will be in the episode notes. I'm delighted to welcome Michael Napier to our Cold War Conversation.
0: these were conflicts that that really interested me because I can remember, well, as a kid, I can remember seeing the 71 war going on 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 TV and not really understanding it. The 73 war, again, I can remember quite well from um, the newspaper reports and all the rest of it at the time. And then sort of rolling forward, uh, obviously aware of the Iran-Iraq war kicking off and going on. And when I was going through my RAF flying training, we, we were actually training Iraqi pilots at the time, would you believe? Um, to go off and wow. find the taller, <laughs> and and obviously at the same time as well. That was when, uh, as I was going through my flying training at Cranwell, I, I watched. The, you know, I used to rush to the, the the news and watch the Falklands War or the or, you know the the, the the news reports from that. So so those were things that were in the back of my mind, and I've always had an interest in all those little. I, I, I hate to call them little wars because there probably weren't very little, really, for people who were involved in it. In fact, they certainly weren't. Um, but for you know, in terms of the, the Great Cold War and everything else, they, they were sort of almost sideshows. But nevertheless, they were the sort of points of extreme violence, if you like, during a Cold War which generally kept sort of peace in, in Europe. So I was interested in that. I was also interested in, in the fact that you know we do look upon these as bit little wars that happened elsewhere to other people, but of course they happened to real human beings, real people peoples sons, daughters um you know brothers, sisters, and all that and so i i I was interested in the conflicts, particularly from the aerial perspective because that's my interest, but also in terms of trying to sort of personalize it if you like so rather than a sweeping you know the the Indians through fifty sorties this day and three people got killed well what did, what were they what do they do how do they do it who was killed because i think it's quite important
1: that's one of the powerful things in here because you have a number of eyewitness counts from each conflict and i can see in there you've you've tried very hard to name almost every body or as many people as you can in the uh, particular missions that you that you describe in there which I think is 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 right to um you know make sure that these people aren't forgotten for whatever side they were on I think it it's important to remember that there were casualties during the cold War it wasn't mm. just a cold war it was a hot war in a in a lot of in a lot of different places
0: i think one of the interesting things also is is to place these various conflicts in co- context of the cold war i mean thinking the Suez, so we've got the French and the Brits as at that time kind of superpowers with the Americans upsetting the Americans at the same time as the Soviets were invading uh, Hungary. In fact, almost exactly the same, almost to the day, the same time. So this sort of um, a crisis happening, which ev- which eventually ends up with, with it leaving just you know the, the Brits and, and, and the French are being squeezed out. Congo, again, interesting in the early 60s um, because I mean, that, that actually coincides pretty much with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but also at a time when the, U- the UN actually is taking names kicking ass, it's actually flying combat missions. And I think that's probably the only time that um, that the United Nations has had its own little air force to fly combat missions. Then drifting through to, to the Arab-Israeli and the, and the Arab-Pakistani wars, it gets quite interesting there, seeing how India and Pakistan started off. I mean, just looking at, at the aircraft, um, the uh, the Pakistani Air Force is virtually all American, the the, the um, Indian Air Force virtually all British and French then rolled it forward to 71. And suddenly the Indians are trying to distance themselves from the British and and have sort of got into bed with the Soviets. And at the same time, the Pakistanis are distancing themselves from the Americans and have got into bed with the Chinese. Uh, and then you end up with yeah. a 73 war between the you know, Arab and Israeli. And that becomes almost a proxy war between, between the USA and the USSR in terms of equipment and, and backing each side. Uh, Iran-Iraq, again, interesting that we were backing the Iraqis at the time. Um, and it was kind of us against the, uh, the, the Iranians who were pretty much on their own, really. And again, Falklands. Seeing how NATO did kind of pull together to help the you know the, the British out, but also I think that, that, it, that at the time when when Britain had, had just sort of recovered from was recovering from the seventies and, and didn't really believe in itself, and other people were kind of looking and going yeah whatever. Suddenly that gave us the confidence, and I think also um, a, a garnered an awful lot of respect. Around the world, people are thinking. Well, actually, we do need to. We do need to listen to these British people because, um, you know, they, 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 you know, they are serious players in in the world. So, you know, it's interesting to to look at these conflicts, but also to see them in in, in the larger context of, of the Cold War as, as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, what I wanted to do was just dip into a few of these in a bit more detail. And I think Suez is a really good one to start with, as you say. It can't be viewed in isolation. The Soviet invasion of Hungary was going on at the same time. Hungary had brought in a government who wanted Hungary to become neutral and leave the Warsaw Pact, and uh, the Soviets came in and fought against the uh, Hungarian army during that period. And there were comparisons made with Britain invading another country with the uh, the Soviet actions in Hungary at the time as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. I, th- I think the Americans were upset that it was all planned without them knowing. But it was all, it was again it was all one of those sneaky things with the Israelis involved as well, um, uh, with, with, with the French. So that sort of Anglo French and Israeli. And again, one of the interesting things is to say. That, I mean, I hadn't realized that the, um, the the French Air Force were actually operating from Israel. In fact, there were, I think a couple of squadrons actually were given pseudo Israeli Air Force squadron numbers. So it's sort of quite quite interesting to see to, to, to that. But but one of the other things are, and again, about all of these um, conflicts is that I found it very difficult my, myself when trying to, to to read about these things that to find a book which covered everything and from all sides because. Quite often, you can you can find something that tells you about one side, but not the other. So, mm-hmm. uh, and also those tend to be very very biased as well to whichever side they're telling the story of. I mean, there's a there's a book about the Pakistan, uh, the fir- yeah the first Indo-Pakistan war about the Pakistan Air Force, and it is unbelievably purely biased. And, and that's the case of an awful lot of, of, of that stuff. And in the case of the um, of Suez, I found it difficult to find anything that, that covered both the French and British, but also both the Air Force and the Navy, because both both countries had had both there so there was all the carrier stuff happening as well and and, and again re, really interesting to you know to to pull all that lot together and and see again how air power is used because again the, the idea was in that sort of classic way that that, that we've you, know, you can put it through to to the, to the gulf wars as well where the idea is you go in with the air force for three or four days and take out the enemy air force and, and establish air superiority and then you bring in the the, the surface forces and uh, but in fact that was pretty much the case in um uh, down the Falklands as well, so it's quite interesting to see that um, you know, how that panned out. But also, I say to have that big picture of it.
1: There's so many nuggets in in the in the book that I enjoyed. You know, things that I thought, God, I never knew that. <laughs> and you know, the, the Israel at the time of Suez was sort of like on the cusp of the jet age, as far as its um, air force. The worst concern. I mean, I was astonished to see that photo of an Israeli B seventeen yeah. flying fortress. Yes, well, that's a,
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's the, that's quite a surprise, isn't it? Yeah, they ha- I think they had about three or four of them, and that, this was their sort of bombing, yeah, you know, bombing sort. But yes, amazing. I mean, the, it, the the war kicked off with Israelis flying at ultra low level across the Sinai Desert in P fifty one Mustangs with wire cutters trailing beneath them, so they could cut the telephone cables. <laughs> it's always, it's always <laughs> unbelievable, isn't it? Really, they have, But you're right. That, that stage, there were all these. Um, you know, second world war aircraft that they've been handed over um and then the, then of course the, the early jet aircraft as well they they just started uh, you know, t- t- to be able to acquire you know, m- many of them french but um yeah mm. yeah, so yeah an interesting mixture of, of of machinery
1: and i think the the other thing that's pretty unique about Suez is it was probably the last combat parachute drop of the british army i i would have thought a a airborne landing under fire. I think
0: you're right, yes, and and, and the French as well because of course the French, well, I think the British landed on the western side up at Port Said and the um, uh, the French landed on the other side. The also thing that surprised me was to find that when the RAF bombers were sent in, they were basically using World War Two tactics. So, they sent in the Canberras with target-marking flares, so they went in and put flares down, and then the bombers went over and bombed the flares. And, you know, it seems crazy that oh, 11 years after the war had ended, the, um, you know, they were using the same techniques as, as, the, as you know, Lancaster crews and Halifax crews had, had used during World War II over Germany.
1: I guess the aircraft had evolved, but the actual munitions they were dropping were still dumb munitions
0: that's a critical point really because that uh, you know, bombing an airfield it's you know an airfield's a big big area and unless you actually get the bombs in exactly the right place they just make big holes in the sand there or the grass or whatever so and that's that's the case yeah i mean i think it was actually the it, it's the it's the weapon aiming i think was 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 the um, was the problem that they they really still didn't have um, a decent radar system to to, to bomb at night so they resorted to world war 2 methods with not very good results i have to say <laughs>
1: What about the Egyptian Air Force? Did they give a good account of themselves well, they, or not?
0: Um, I think it depends which way you look at it. I mean, I would say they did in that they were fiendishly clever and realised straight off that they, that they were going to lose if they tried to take on this massive armada. I mean, all these um, uh, aircraft from from the RAF that were and from the French Air Force based in Cyprus and Malta. Um, again, aircraft based in in Israel as well, and then. Um, uh, the Royal Navy had three carriers. The French had two carriers. So you know it, it was a very one-sided context. So the the Egyptians, um, I, I think, very very smartly thought, right, let's just let's just get all our planes out of here and pull them out of range, which is what they did. I think there were a couple. There were a couple that uh, that floated around. There was a um, a, a Mig fifteen, I think, or a couple of them, which were operating from road road strips and things. Um, and I did actually, I think, one of them did try to engage the um, Royal Navy aircraft attacking the, the, the canal zone at one stage. I think they did. They claim to, have, to to have got a kill, but I don't think it actually happened. But they certainly, were, you know, were, enemy aircraft were seen, and also um, a lot of um, they put a lot of decoys. Actually, a lot of really well made decoys. So again, the. Um the French and uh, and British, particularly the Cariborne aircraft that that were dropping from low level, were were claiming to have, uh, have destroyed lots of these MiG 15s they seen, but they were actually very very good decoys that had been built. The real airplanes were miles and miles away, well out of harm's <laughs> way. So I I think actually that they were really smart in in, in looking at it. Going okay, well, there's no point. Let's just you know pull ourselves away, and then we'll be good to fight another day.
1: I'd like to spend more time talking about Suez, but um the the one that I hadn't. I'd heard of it, but I definitely wasn't familiar with much of it. Is Congo nineteen sixty yeah. to sixty five? That
0: that's what I mean. It, re- it really interested me, and 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 that's why I, I, I included it. So, I've already mentioned that the, the bit about the, the UN having its own little air force, which is a, an interesting thing. But also, it's it's really interesting to see how air power works. If you you don't need much of it, if the other side haven't got any, um, and similarly, um, if you do if the other side does get it and then uses it sensibly, it it, it can completely destroy your advantage. And, and
1: Can we just explain what the situation is in Congo and why the UN are involved?
0: So in 1960, or in the late 50s, should we say, um, Congo's a, a Belgian um, territory. However, the locals are getting more and more unhappy with this and the Belgian um, authorities are, are doing a particularly bad job. And so at the end, um, in 1960, the Belgians are persuaded that perhaps they should go home and uh, leave Congo to be independent. And so Congo becomes independent. But uh, with, I have to say, tacit um, Belgian and also British and French um, uh, agreement, the southeasterly province of Katanga decides that it's going to be independent itself and become the country of, of Katanga. The, the British, French and Belgians thought this was a good idea because that's the rich part, the mineral rich part where all the diamonds come from. So obviously thought if they help, surprise, if they help surprise. them out, then you know maybe we'll win with the diamonds. <laughs> and that, for that reason also, the, the Congolese turned around and said, well, no, we're not happy with that at all. So uh, basically a civil war broke out really between uh, the... Um, Congolese army, uh, it's called the ANC, and I can't remember exactly what it stands for, uh, and the Katangese uh, Gendarmerie. And at, at the same time, as it, the whole country sort of um, started falling into anarchy, the uh, the government of, of Congo appealed to the UN and said, please can you help us? So um, a UN peacekeeping force was sent there. I think it's one of the very early UN, UN uh, peacekeeping forces. So they were sent in to try and sort of hold the, the thought between you know, stop stop the conflict but also to persuade the Katangis that really they shouldn't be doing this. So that's where we were at um, and at this stage the Congolese do, do not have any air force at all. The Katangis however do. Um, they have um, these de Havilland Dove little light aeroplane, um, sort of small airliners and they turn them in, into bombers by initially um, sticking, a, or, or, uh, sticking a machine gun in, in, in the doorway and, and firing off but also by getting Big petrol um, drums, putting a grenade in them, pulling the pin, and chucking the thing out the out of the door. Not very accurate, but if you can imagine, you're in a, in a little um, you know village in the middle of nowhere, and and um, this thing going off in the middle of the night is going to really scare the hell out of you. And so it's a remarkably effective in terms of you know the hearts and minds, the psychological side of it, of of, um, of, of fright, and also frightening the the ANC troops as well because they'd be in their little camps and suddenly you know the the um, there were these bangs going off around them. So. That, that's how things started out. Um, they then got a bit more clever, and uh, one of the local mining companies was persuaded to, to, to manufacture uh, bombs, so they, they made them out, out of pipes, really, and high-explosive, but uh, nevertheless quite effective. And uh, a couple of, of, of the doves were converted to, to carry th- these bombs, so and they could be released quite, quite accurately. So we've now got the situation where, with a handful of aircraft, the uh, Katangis were able to exert an incredible amount of influence, really, over, over what was happening on the ground, um, you know, really support their own people, and um, you know, uh, uh, upset the, the ANC troops very, very effectively. Um, and then the Katangese had ordered nine Fuga Magister trainers, these little jet um, trainer things, of which three arrived, and then the, the remaining six didn't, because there was an arms embargo uh, at that stage. But the three that did arrive one of them i think they crashed fairly early on um and now I, and i should say these are all flown by by mercenaries uh, mainly belgian mercenaries but, uh, but but some eastern europeans as well but uh, one was particularly effective in um september of 61 um 62 around there when the talks uh, peace talks were going on under the un um, under UN auspices, and um, this one airplane, because it was relatively fast and had, had carried machine guns and bombs, could flash around and be in one place and drop a couple of bombs were here, and then go somewhere else and, and, and strafe people. And again, the, 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 it's almost a reign of terror. This guy, uh, Jose Magen, his name was uh, a, a sort of one man, one man band, having this amazing amount of, um, or exerting this amazing amount of pressure, really, um, on uh, on both the UN um, people and on on the ANC. Uh, In fact, it all came to to a head when um, Conor Cruz O'Brien, who was was a a UN uh, envoy, came out of a a press conference with all the world's press there and again pitched up in his magister and strafed him. So this picture of of the UN man sort of cowering behind a tree. And this really did make the UN sit up and and think, well, actually, we need to do something about this. So so they appealed for um, some combat aircraft. The appeal was answered by the Ethiopians who sent um, a squadron of F-86 Sabres. Uh the, the Indians who sent a squadron of um Canberras. Um and also the uh, Swedish who sent a squadron of uh J sub J twenty nines, sort of uh, first generation jet fighter. It's called a the Tunnen, a barrel. It looks it looks like almost like a sort of jet powered jet propelled barrel. It
1: does look like a strange sort of uh, look to it. And
0: uh, yeah, and, and so these guys, uh, particularly the, the the um the Swedes and the um the the, the Indians, um because the the indian the indians were a bomber um, aircraft attack aircraft and and the um the the Saabs, the swedes could could do either were sent out and, and they attacked the 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 katangese um air bases and basically managed to destroy a lot of the uh, a lot of the aircraft and the infrastructure there and that basically put put a stop to uh, to to advocate the katangese air force for a while um and then of course the, the um there's a, a UN opera, operation called Rum Punch where they they, they advanced into Katanga and grabbed uh, all the mercenaries and, and um, expelled them. But of course, the mercenaries then got out and then bought themselves a ticket back again and were very soon back in the country. Um, and about at about the same time, the Avocat sort of then. Started building itself up again. Initially, they had some Dornier 28s, it little sort of twin engined light aircraft, high wing thing. Which again, they went back to machine gun in the door and um, you know grenades, uh, and, and started using those mainly at night again, where where they knew that um, the Ethiopians and the um, the Swedes wouldn't be able to find them. And then um, they. Started managing to buy uh, Harvard trainers, the uh, American Harvards, which again could be modified and, and and indeed were modified to carry bombs. They ended up with with virtually nine of these things at one stage and started um, started bringing these into service. And at that stage, the UN decided that another attack was required to to take them out. Now, by this time, the um, the, the the Indians had gone home, um, and as had uh, the Ethiopians, and they had been replaced by. Um, the iranian so the imperial iranian air force who sent f86 sabers as did well the philippine air force sent pilots and the italian air force sent f86 saber aircraft and the philippine guys flew the, uh, the, the italian aircraft if that all makes sense um,
1: so it's a veritable united nations was, yeah.
0: absolutely yeah, yeah. And, and then and then a final sort of attack by the uh, by by the swedish managed to actually put paid to uh, to to advocates and uh, and drive them out
1: and, and that's one of the things that I found incredible. I had no idea that the Swedish Air Force had actually attacked an enemy during the Cold War, albeit under the aegis of the United Nations, but
0: never heard of that before. No, I, I, that, I mean, that's what really interested me, that it was this, this little war had gone on and, and it was kind of almost forgotten, really, and so to actually to bring that out and that also to, to to bring in the mercenary side of it as well, a, a couple of books which again are it's difficult to sort of gauge how how exact they are because I think that the, the guys who wrote them were, were were sort of trying to embellish their stories and, and embellish their own importance really. But but again, it's interesting to put those accounts together with the um, you know, with the Swedish and, and the and the Indians because again in the UN files which which are all online actually you you can find sort of the combat reports from the, from the Indian pilots and the uh, and again the um, the Swedes as well. So it was, yeah, it was really interesting to to pull all that lot together, really, and I say to, to to come away with a bit of an understanding of of that particular what well, conflict, for want of a better word, but um, but um, but also, as I say, how it illustrated you know the, the, the power of of, of um, the combat aircraft, particularly if, if it's unopposed, it's um, remarkably effective. But again, if you then have an effective campaign against the airfields, that works really well as well you know, as, as the UN. Yeah, demonstrated on, on two occasions
1: yeah and as we see in in some of these other examples oh, yes, yes, as well yeah we do and for those that aren't familiar with this congo conflict if you've ever seen the film the siege of j dotville um that is the same conflict where the uh, irish are trying to hold out against the katangese
0: that that was one of the or, or the um, supply uh, resupply f- for the for the Irish at that battle was um, was interdicted to a certain extent by by the Captain Air Force. The, the Magister I think was certainly involved in, in dissuading um, the uh, a, a UN a couple of UN helicopters from going that way. And they also um, I think strafed the, uh, the there was a bridge uh, which was over one of the rivers, which which again they they um, were able to, to wreck, so that couldn't be used.
1: Yeah, I seem to think, I, I haven't seen the film in a while, but I think there may have been a CGI-generated Magister yeah, yeah. in that film. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and I certainly see, you know, this one aeroplane play, played an enormous part. I always think with the Magister,
1: it's got a very unusual tail, isn't it? Yes, like a V-tail, yeah. Is it Belgian made or uh,
0: no? It's actually French, French. made. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and of course, it reappears again in the in, in the nineteen sixties in Israel, um, where, where again it's used mm-hmm. for, for close air support. I mean, an airplane less suited to that, particularly in the sort of yeah uh, you know, the, the, the the heat of battle going on in the Middle East is, is difficult to find. But uh, but yep, they were they were used there as well.
1: Let's have a a quick dip into the the Indo-Pakistan wars yeah. i mean you you feature two of them in here why why do you you feature both of those
0: the, again they're, they're interesting from the air force perspective they're slightly different so the first one in 65 is interesting because the pakistanis had a, well, a very very small air force but it was all american equipped so they had um, about six squadrons of f-86 six Sabres, which is their their, their their main aircraft type uh, a couple of squadrons of starfighters um and um a Couple of squadrons of the American version of the Canberra, the B fifty seven. So this was this very small um, air force. It was um, equipped with exclusively American aircraft and, and quite modern ones at that. And as a member of, I think, Asciento, uh, which Pakistan was, they had access to uh, American training, um, British training. And so what you had was a very small, well equipped, and very well trained air force on the one side. On the other side, the Indian air force was kind of somewhat larger. Um, but that was equipped with mainly French and British aircraft. And again, it's, it's just interesting to see things like Hawker Hunters, the Folland Gnat, a tiny little thing, which was only actually we, used in the RF as a trainer. But the, uh, there was a fighter variant which was used by exclusively by the Indians and the, um, the Finns with the other people they managed to sell it to. <laughs> um, and then French aircraft, Mysteres and Uragans and, and, and other such um, sort of stuff again the the indian air force i got the impression was not quite as effective it was it was much bigger air force and i think it was probably resting on its on its laurels to an extent and i think it got a bit bit of a, a shock when they when the pakistanis um took them on but i yeah it was interesting because it, i think almost you need to to ha- to to sort of see how that went to, to understand the later one, the seventy seventy one war, because the sixty five war was basically a, a, about um, Jammu and Kashmir and trying to, the the Pakistanis trying to cut off Indian access to it, so that that never quite happened. On the other hand, the seventy one war was uh, was when uh, East Pakistan, what's now known as Bangladesh, was was breaking free from uh, from West Pakistan. And so they're, they're almost that was almost two wars because the revolt and uprising in uh, East Pakistan was being put down by by Pakistani troops, and the Indians decided that they would uh, help out the the rebels as it were, and that then triggered the war and of course the the Pakistanis were on the other side of the country, and they they, they decided that they needed to attack the um, northwest of of India in order to take the heat off what was happening over in the east so you but you kind of have to uh, have, have to have that understanding of how the first war had gone because that very much drove the way that the second one went, particularly on that, that Western front where it, it, was, it was almost a replay. of. of, of yeah, it was interesting to see. I, I think the Indians had learned many lessons um, and, and the Indian Air Force came out an awful lot better than, than, it, than it had out of the, the, the 65 war. And again, that, that's a reflection, I think, perhaps on, on good leadership, um, that, that, that the, the Indian leadership had, had realised that things needed to be addressed. On the eastern side, over East Pakistan, straight Bangladesh, Bangladesh. Um, again, there was one single squadron of, uh, of fighter aircraft from from, from Pakistan again, up against a, a, you know, a whole massive number of, of of squadrons on the on the um, on the Indian side. So, uh, but again, the Indians were very, were very good at taking out the runway, so, so the, the Pakistanis could not could not fly after about day two, and so that, that was a sort of very well organized campaign. But also there is quite interesting like that um we talked about the last sort of big um parachute jump in in suez but the interesting in um at Silhet was the in the seventy one wars that well, i think probably one of the biggest uh, and may still be the biggest um helicopter borne um uh, movement of troops in in into combat um which uh, which happened over yeah, so over in uh, what is now Bangladesh. so lots of quite interesting little bits here and there
1: there's all sorts of little nuggets like like this in the uh book and uh, and it's like you were saying about this taking out each other's air forces on the ground if if possible that that tactic and that is you know the the same in with the arab israeli war in 1967
0: yeah it is um and the difference really is it, for both the indians and pakistanis that had tried tried to do that but half-heartedly um the, we've seen that the the, um, the UN being quite effective at a very very small scale uh, in Congo, and, and prior to that we saw the the British and French being very ineffective at doing it in in Suez. Uh, so 67 is interesting because the the whole premise of it was this preemptive strike to take out the whole of the Egyptian air force, and it was remarkably effective, and it was effective because it was first of all it was led by very very good intelligence on the part of the Israelis. Um, secondly, um, they made sure they had the right weapons, um, these so-called diva bombs, which would actually bury themselves into the concrete before going bang. Um, uh, uh, So they had the right weapons. They practiced it. So I think they had numerous assorted ways of of practicing. So all the pilots knew what to expect. And and also they, they were able to employ overwhelming firepower by, flying the mission, coming back, turning the airplanes very quickly and then sending them out again. So I, I think at one stage the, the Egyptians claimed that, um, that that the Israelis had, had sort of uh, extra aircraft coming in from America or from Britain or somewhere, but actually it was just they were turning them around very quickly to send them back again so, so the pressure was kept on. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost the master class in, in how to run one of these sort of counter air campaigns, really. Interesting though, less effective because they'd concentrate on what was happening in Egypt. Um, when the Syrians and the Iraqis then got involved, it, it, it sort of didn't quite come together in quite the same way. Um, although again, I mean, the, the Syrians were persuaded to withdraw all their aircraft up to the north out of range. So that, that worked quite well. But it took a couple of goes at um, the, the H3 airfield over in, uh, in Iraq. Um, and again, the the Israelis never quite closed it down as, as they'd hoped to. They, they, they ran a couple of raids there, but um, it, it, it was more, I think, the fact that the the Iraqi Air Force wasn't terribly effective at the time, um, that, 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 that they were sort of persuaded not not to take more of a part in it.
1: By the 73 war, the, um, the Arab nations have sort of learnt their lesson and try and do the the same for the Israelis as they right. yes. as they'd done in sixty seven.
0: Yes, um, and, and the other thing that had changed a lot. I and mean, one of the things if, uh, in sixty seven, um, although both sides had missiles, they were not very effective missiles. And so all of the the air to air kills during sixty seven were, were were with a gun. So uh, it was all it was all gunfight. Suddenly by seventy three, uh, missile technology has come on leaps and bounds. And so you've now got very effective air to air missiles um but the other thing you have got is very effective surface to air missiles and that was really the, the strength when when the egyptians started their advance was they had this um this umbrella of of um soviet made surface to air missiles which were very very effective and took a massive toll of um of the israeli aircraft to start with um so the, I mean, that's the sort of the, the, the dynamic changes quite dramatically unfortunately it does also um you know once the egyptians advance beyond their air co- or the cover of their, their missiles, uh, they became vulnerable to air attack. Um, and also the Israelis decided, had realised that uh, they needed to do something. So they then started targeting the, um, the, the, yeah, the Soviet missile sites and started taking them down one by one. Um, so, it, again, it's a sort of battle of the missiles there.
1: One, one of the things I did pick out of that uh, part of the book, which, which I hadn't realised, is exchange pilots where other nations were serving in another nation's air force on, for for example, like training because I think there's mention of a Pakistani pilot there who's was. serving with the Egyptian air force. Yeah,
0: actually, yeah, he was actually serving with the um, uh, with the Iraqi air force, and and I think and I think it's actually the um, I think it's actually the sixty seven war. It's interesting. Yeah, he was a Pakistani pilot, and I think he may have taken part in the sixty five war with India. He then was on exchange with the Iraqis, found himself caught up in the 67 war. And then he went back and he fought um, in the 71 war. And I think he ended up, I think he may indeed have been an East Pakistani. So he may well have ended up in Bangladesh in, in the end. And I think he ended up in the Bangladesh Air Force. <laughs> but yeah, he would um, And... Uh, Again his skill I, I think was something which, um, which which was very very useful indeed to uh, to to the iraqi air force in that in, in that, uh, that earlier conflict but you 're right i mean one of the, things, the other thing that's surprising was that the North Koreans were involved in the seventy three war um, with the, the squadron of Mig twenty ones that were were down in, in in southern Egypt, and then all the other um, air forces—Tunisians, uh, Algerians, certainly Algerians—and um, uh, and and other t- other such nations. But of course, it, the other thing from the Israeli's perspective, as had been the case in '67, was was having to war, fight a war on on two fronts, uh, both up to the north with against the Syrians, and then and and down to you know to the um, down to the, the, the south and west to get against Egyptians. So uh, again, being a very small uh, country, they're able to 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 do that. But but I mean, in in terms of the the, the workload on the air force, it was it was actually phenomenal, really, in terms of the guys having to fly, you know, north one in the morning and south in the afternoon, or or vice versa.
1: Having to fly those that number of sorties in a short
0: period of time must be exhausting. I think yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was absolutely exhausting. Um, um, But was interesting, actually. The the forward um, uh, to the books written by um, uh, an Israeli poet called Itamar Noina, who I'd come across. I, I, when I was researching this, I came across uh, a manuscript that uh, that he'd written, which is it's on the. Um, Israeli Air Force website and it's well worth it. It's called Six O'Clock as Usual, which is a reference to he'd he being your six o'clock <laughs> as usual because he's a good fighter mm-hmm. pilot. Um but it's written in an v- incredibly modest way and an incredibly um uh, I don't say but yeah, just very, very well written. Um and that that described his, his experiences flying Mirages in, in, in the um sixty seven war. Um and he's also involved in the seventy three war. But um the I mean the, the point that, that that he makes is, is that how you know, we we sit here in a, in our very comfortable chairs discussing warfare and history, but it's you actually part of it, you know, seeing your friends getting killed, you know, risking your life, being you know, as you say, having having to fly how many missions a day, being utterly exhausted and knowing that you're you know that you might die tomorrow, um, you know, seeing your friends, you know, houses getting bombed, civilians getting killed, maimed, everything else. It's a very very nasty business, and and you know, again, I think that's something that we perhaps as military historians. Don't really give enough perhaps thought to or, or you know, or acknowledgement of and, and so when he wrote all that, I thought, actually, you really have hit the nail on the head there
1: uh, there's a really powerful photo from the Battle of Britain of a Battle of Britain pilot, and he looks absolutely exo- you yeah. know he looks like he's barely able to stand on his feet and I think it it, it is difficult to imagine both the psychological pressure the emotions that you're going yeah. through there and i just can't imagine how how you would you would deal with that no.
0: and a particular case in perhaps of the, the israelis where you know their very small country was being in 73 a, a massive overwhelming surprise attack was driving them back and it was looking like maybe you know th- maybe their country their home might get wiped off the map completely so yeah one, one mm. can only one can but um yeah. Can't perhaps can't even begin to understand what what it must have been like, but uh, yes, yeah, so that kind of psychological pressure must be absolutely fantastic, you know, fantastically hard.
1: Now, we we mentioned in the uh, the introduction, you know, we were talking about the the wars that you've covered within within this book, and the Iran Iraq war is surprisingly, I think, forgotten, yes, in the history books. Yet, yeah, as far as I mean, there were millions involved in. In that and it was eight years That's right, of yeah. almost trench warfare yeah. going on it's, certainly on the ground anyway yeah
0: absolutely yeah it was it was, it was very very basic and, and it was um it, again the Iraqis thought that there, this, this opportunity was there to just nip across because um the, the Iranians it was just after their revolution taking place what well, a couple of years before that so they thought oh, the wonderful opportunities to nip across the border and annex the bits that we want uh, discovered it didn't quite go that way and then and then started saying, oh, "All right, let's have a, you know, let, Let's talk about peace." Without, you know. meanwhile, the, the Ayatollahs said, "Well, actually, that's not the way we do business. We are, you know, we we will take back what you've to, what, you know, what, what you've um, taken from us, and and we're going to get our pound of flesh as well." And so it became very much, a, a, certainly from the Iranian political perspective, um, you know, it, it, a, a ve- very vengeful, really. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean on on the ground on the ground it, it, it was, you know, utterly sort of you know first world war and um you know, people human wave attacks and and all sorts of, of nasty horrible things, uh, use of chemicals. Um mm. yeah, very very, very unpleasant. Um and again that has started with the, the Iraqis thinking that they would um, take out the um Iranian Air Force. This is now it, it was the Imperial, it's now the um, Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force, the Iriaf. But again, they did so half-heartedly, really. They sent one wave of aircraft who came back and said, yep, yeah, we've done it. And so the second wave was cancelled. <laughs> and the third, fourth, and fifth waves that probably should have gone as well didn't. So uh, so in fact, it, it, it didn't really have, have much effect. And so you start off with quite an intense um, a- aerial warfare going on. But then, of course, because the uh, all the Iranian aircraft or Air Force aircraft are all American. They've got Phantoms. They've got Tomcats. Um, they've got F-5 freedom fighters, but they don't have any spare parts. And a similar thing is true of the Iraqis, is they, they, they start running out of spare parts as well. So having, having a sort of very sort of fast and frantic sort of um, aerial warfare for the first few months, suddenly it all slows down, and uh, they, they're trying to sort of husband their resources. And I guess it's really the Iraqis who, sort of about 83, 84, like, decide they're going to start taking out the tankers from the um, you know, the, the so-called tanker war starts. And again, that started with with helicopters firing Exocet missiles, and then eventually they can they get they get some uh, Superétoiles from the French, which are on loan, and they they use those, and then eventually get the Mirage F ones that, that can carry them. So you, you end up with, with uh, as the Iranians do really get forced to to to, to move their oil exports sort of further and further up the Gulf to, to try and keep out of the range of the Iraqi air force, um, and in the end they end up with the, the world's biggest or largest tanker ever built is, is, is there as a sort of a floating oil terminal right at the mouth of, of the Gulf. And the Iraqis are flying the, these missions where they'll, they'll send off sort of um, five Mirages, of which one has got a, an Exocet and, and the other four have got fuel tanks, or buddy-buddy you know, fuel tanks. So they then refuel each other down, um, these sort of long-range strikes, to, to, to take out um, shipping uh, or Iranian-registered uh, ships, or, or, or should I say ships that are buying Iranian oil. Uh, meanwhile, the Iranians start trying to do the same thing to <laughs> the tankers that that are that are um, uh, the, the, the transporting Iraq, oil, although that's mainly done um by you know, seaborne forces, so the air force aren't really involved in that mm. mate very much but um, yeah
1: I found that interesting that l- the long range missions that were put together there. Yeah, it's quite
0: sophisticated, really.
1: It sort of reminded me a little bit of Black Buck.
0: Yes, well, it, 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 yeah, it's very much so. Yes, on on a slightly smaller scale, but it's, yeah, it's basically the same sort of principle, isn't it? Of yeah, uh, you know, these massive um, you know, armadas of tankers going out with, with with a single bomber,
1: which neatly brings us it into does, the Falklands. Yes. <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah. um, the Falklands. I distinctly remember yeah. being shocked that my country had gone to war. Um, but followed it avidly on TV. Yeah,
0: I think we all did, didn't
1: we? Those funereal announcements from that guy at the Ministry That's of Defence. Right, yes. Yeah, he's
0: completely who dead. Who could have pan, had a career he? as an
1: undertaker. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it was a very, you know, it was a war that Britain wasn't really prepared for. I mean, you know, the the Navy was in the process of being cut,
0: Yes, that's that's what caused it. I think largely because, um, particularly, it was it was when they they got rid of endurance or were going to announce they're going to. Um, that's what <laughs> persuaded the Argentinians really that that the the British weren't serious anymore. And you're absolutely right. I think the I think Invincible was due to be sold to the Australians. Um, the mm-hmm. uh, the Vulcan bombers are all being cut up. Um, you know, literally smashed up at, at, at Waddington. They, they they'd, uh, all the squadrons have been dis about to be disbanded. Uh, you know, half of them had already gone. Um, there were a few Sea Harriers, but. It was not only the the British who were unprepared. The Argentinians were unprepared as well. Really, they kind of completely misread the situation, and particularly the air force. This is a, a fairly small air force, and it was designed to fight the war against Chile. So it was all short range, you know, mirages, uh, single engine aircraft. They wouldn't want to fly vast distances over the sea. Um, and you know, th- these guys were were used to doing, I guess, close air support type stuff over here for the army on the ground. Um, Mm-hmm. Or you know, fly across the, the mountains to Chile and go and bomb something. But they certainly had no idea about you know flying over the sea and no idea about how to attack a ship either. So these guys were really had been were dropped in it from a great height, and and they also had to redeploy from from their normal bases up in northern uh, northern um, Argentina down right down to the south. It's really the sort of the, the war between the unprepared and the unprepared, really. Um,
1: yeah and and this is a very different war to the to the ones that you described before because there really isn't a preemptive strike at all it, everybody knows where everybody's going to be the Argentinians are waiting for the carriers to get down to the um the Falklands it's predictable but as you say their air force is, is unprepared and to some degree the the royal navy is saved by the Argentinians not being particularly good at fusing their bombs as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, that there's not that the, it's not so much the fusing of the bombs. So the, the issue is if you drop because they actually had British bombs, I think, and if you drop one of these things, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, uh, it, it's got a clockwork fuse in it, literally a clockwork fuse, mm. and it takes time for that to run down. And then, then then the bomb goes bang when it hits something. Um, but the t- time it takes to run down is basically you need to drop from, from probably about above 150 feet. So the guys were, were attacking these ships, and because they weren't used to that, but firstly, um, I think they were quite amazed by the amount of firepower that's going back at them, but also um, they, they hadn't really thought through this business about, you know, what height do you, what height do you drop these weapons from? And so they were dropping from ultra-low level, I not know, 50 feet, something like that, and the things really didn't have an opportunity to to, to fuse. I, again, I mean, they obviously they dropped them pretty accurately, because um, there, there were you know, a number of them went either straight through ships or... You know, actually lodged in them, and I think that was the case with with a couple. I think it was ardent. I think ended up getting blown up with a, a bomb that was being diffused in, in the back because it, it actually lodged actually in, in the back of the ship. I think the the um, Argentinian pilots were incredibly brave um, and um, incredibly let down by their own command and control, but 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 uh, also you know, they, they 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 were pretty accurate when they uh, were, you know, when they did the, drop their weapons.
1: With the Vulcan, I mean, they were you know they they were bringing these uh, aircraft down to ascension for this long range mm-hmm. mission but from what i understood they were Scrabbling around for spare parts for these things. Because-
0: well, yes, they're going out of service. So, um, yeah, they're scrabbling around for spare parts. But also um, they, they were looking at using the missile um, pylons that, that had been originally for a Sky Vault missile, but to use them first to put um, a, a jammer, um EW jammer on it, but also um, to, to put anti-radiation missiles on them. So uh, I think although the first two Black Buck missions dropped um, three four bombs onto the airfield, the remaining ones mm. uh, were, you know, were, were carrying Shrike missiles In order to uh, to take out the anti-aircraft radars down there, so yeah, so first of all they had to find these uh, the the, the pylons that had been sort of (laughs) from this weapon that was cancelled in the early 1960s, and then stick them on. Again, the aircraft were not, I think, in general equipped for air-to-air refueling, um, so they had to to, to sort all that lot out as well, and and also train the crews because again the crews hadn't done any air-to-air refueling, so. I think when they flew the missions, uh, there was an extra crew member who was actually a Victor pilot who was an air-to-air refuelling instructor, <laughs> and I think he stood between, <laughs> or stood on the ladder between the two pilots and you know, sort of gave said left a bit, right said, a bit, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the whole thing was, I mean, was a remarkable piece of airmanship. I think, I mean, absolutely remarkable to yeah. to, to have flown those distances and uh, uh, you know, and actually to drop, you know, quite accurately w- within the you know, the, the bounds of, of the equipment they had. Yeah, but uh, yeah, w- whether it, was any tactical use at all? I think is debatable. And obviously, the strategic impact of being able to drop those bombs was, you know, and the PR impact and the psychological impact was was actually massive. But in terms of tactically being able to close the airfield, it it didn't. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, and and not nor, nor indeed the, did the Harrier and Sea Harrier raids um, either, because they, again, they didn't really have the the weapons to to, to do it properly in the same way that the, the Israelis had done.
1: But I guess the the Harrier, and obviously we can't talk about the Falklands without mentioning the yes. Harrier, was important from a air superiority.
0: I think it was, yeah, tremendously. View. Well, firstly, the Sea Harrier, and you know what what those guys achieved was absolutely phenomenal, really. And, and they did not only fight very well, but but also I think they they, they their aggr- the aggressive way that that that, that, that they uh, that they flew actually did frighten, if you like, or or, or give them the psychological advantage. As well, so he got to the stage where I think the um, you know the, the Argentinian pilots were very very worried about you know what the Sea Harriers might do, and were you know, I think there were a couple of occasions when when guys did say, well, it's not worth going there; we'll just uh, we'll drop our bombs and go home rather than, than pressing tangling with the Sea Harriers. The great sadness was, was actually that the Harriers are one squadron who were completely underused because the um, I think the guy who who, who was the, the captain of, um, of Hermes was was he, he didn't like the RAF. So, <laughs> I think he thought it was more important to to you know to, to to be thoroughly um, obnoxious towards the RAF. Uh, more important that than than actually, um, yeah, you know, the fighting the Argentinians. So, um, the the Sea Harrier or, or the, the Harrier parts think were very frustrated that they weren't used properly. Um, because again, I think had they had they been given uh, the proper targets and things, they, they probably could have made a big difference. But they, they did actually. I think they they, they um, it's claimed that they, that they sort of swung the balance during the Battle of Goose Green. The weather wasn't good enough for air support during most of the day, but in the evening, two Harriers pitched up and were able to to take out some artillery that was that was holding down the parachute regiment. So, the, uh, and again, uh, that that they got lazy guided weapons came much later on, but before they had the kit really to use them properly. But but again, had, had that been the case, had had they been able to uh, to be used properly, that, that would have made a difference as well. I think. And again, it's it's, it's it's interesting to see how things were, how aircraft were used or not used. Um, and really, as someone I say, you know, who made the least mistakes rather than than, uh, than who did the best, really.
1: But I think with the Falklands, also transportation is quite key there in terms of uh, helicopter, yes, transportation. Because with the was the Atlantic Conveyor.
0: As a conveyor, yes, that's right. That took that took out um, most of the helicopters actually. So it, there, there was one Chinook that survived that. So that that was um, that, that, that was pretty drive. But also, I mean, the Royal Navy um, um, helicopters were used as well um, to, to very effectively. But actually, it's all all those um, other bits. So. We, we, uh, yeah, my my background as a as a, a, a ground attack pilot, so I tend to sort of be rather biased that way. But um, the you know w- when you look at all the support in terms of air to air refueling for 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 the British side of it, for the um, using the victors which were tanker aircraft, also for maritime reconnaissance as well because uh, they did the long-range reconnaissance down to uh, South Georgia before that was taken. And also the, the Nimrods that were doing maritime reconnaissance, you know, making sure the Argentinian Navy didn't come out. Uh, also, the, I mean, the Argentinians themselves were flying Hercules into and out of Stanley, I think, right through the war at nighttime. Incredibly brave, really. And you know, uh, and you know, take, bringing in supplies, taking out wounded guys, you know, bringing in um, and reinforcements, all that kind of stuff going on as well. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was aircraft or air power itself in in all its guises did play a very important part in in, in the whole of the conflict.
1: Michael, we could talk for hours. (laughs) The book is called Flashpoints, Air Warfare in the Cold War by Michael Napier. It's published by Osprey. There are links in the episode notes where you can buy the book and there's the chance of winning a copy in our book giveaway, so do check out the details on that in the episode notes. Now, this podcast would not exist without our financial supporters and I want to thank one and all of them for their generous support. If you want to help us, just go to coldwarconversations.com donate for more information. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.